0: Our scripture this morning comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know all of us possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something doesn't yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by God. So as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, for us there is only one God, the Creator, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, too. Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Not everyone, however, has this knowledge. Some have become accustomed to idols until now, and they think still of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed. But when you thus sin against brothers and sisters and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never again eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for this strange passage. God, thank you, too, for this time together. Thank you for time to reflect on your word. And, Lord, we ask that whatever words or wisdom we would hear this morning would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. During my time as a youth pastor in Colorado, the state passed legislation to legalize recreational marijuana. And in the months leading up to the opening of dispensaries across the state, I worked in the church to organize a series of community conversations where we discussed, not just with the church, but with the wider city community, what a Christian response to recreational marijuana might be. (laughs) I hear you laughing over there. We had conservative perspectives in the crowd, we had liberals, we had moderates, we had the whole spectrum. And we had some great discussions. When the series ended, my prayer partner approached me and asked me to join him on his porch. We would often meet there to pray, drink wine, eat dark chocolate, and talk together about whatever was going on in life. He was part of a group in the church that was committed to caring for staff in every way possible, and to be honest, I'm so grateful to have been under his care for the time that I had. After we had talked for a while, I asked what I always ask to end any conversation with anyone I've ever talked to, which is, what are you up to for the rest of the day? What are you up to for the rest of the night? And he said to me, you really want to know? <laughs> and I said, yeah, of course. He goes, I think I'm going to go smoke a joint. He told me, you know, he used to smoke in the 60s like everyone his age, and after attending church and starting his career and having kids, he gave it up because it was illegal, and maybe it wasn't such a good look on him. But now that it was legal again, he was going to try it out. As we enter this political year, You're going to see, and likely already are seeing, a lot of things on social media about how Christians should live and what Christians ought to do. Real Christians would see the corruption of our government and vote for Trump to drain the swamp. Real Christians would see the Christian influence in democratic policies and vote for Biden. Real Christians would reject the system outright and write in Pastor Garrett of Fort Street Presbyterian Church. (laughs) Or you'll hear what the Bible says about policies or legislation supported by one side or the other. For example, if Republicans really are the party of Bible-believing Christians then they would welcome immigrants and rein in capitalist tycoons that seem hellbent on exploring space at the expense of the most vulnerable in this world. Or, if Democrats really are the party of biblical faith, then they wouldn't allow our tyrannical government to infringe upon our God-given freedom by overtaxing those of us who worked hard to earn what we have. This question of how Christians should behave, what we should do with our lives, whether as individuals following the path of Christ or as churches gathered together trying to discern the call of the Spirit, it is an unanswered question, and it has been for millennia, no matter how clear you think your version of Scripture is. To borrow from Paul speaking to the Corinthians, When we Christians from all walks of life approach and read scripture, we see it only dimly, as a reflection in a mirror, but at the end of time, we'll see it face to face. Now, Paul says, we only know part of the story, but then we'll know the full thing, even as we are fully known by God. But until then, here we are, Left on our own to work out this question, how then shall we live? Sometime between AD 49 and AD 52, add a couple years on either side of that, I don't know, the Apostle Paul founded the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey. You can read a little about his visit in Acts 18, where we're told Paul arrived in Corinth after visiting Athens. And During his time, he worked as a tent maker alongside Achilla and Priscilla, two fellow Christians, and he devoted himself to preaching the gospel and, apparently, planting this church. For Paul, establishing a church in Corinth would have been significant due to the city's strategic location and its cultural diversity. Corinth was a major commercial center in Greece, located on this isthmus, which is a kind of narrow land bridge that connected mainland Greece with its largest peninsula. And as a result, in Corinth, many trade routes started and stopped or crisscrossed with one another. Corinth was known for its wealth, its cosmopolitan population, and its moral laxity. The church Paul established there reflected this diversity including both Jews and Gentiles and people from various socioeconomic backgrounds. The city was a melting pot. And for Paul, whose chief concern is that the Corinthians be joined together of the same mind and judgment, unified, Jew and Gentile and pagan alike, under the one true God, Corinth was the ideal place for the Spirit to do this work. A church in Corinth, Paul must have thought, with all its diversity, could become the perfect example of what a church could and should be. There was only one problem. They couldn't get along. Here's the, the short list of things that they fought about. First, they formed factions and swore allegiance to different leaders in the faith. So some swore allegiance to Paul, their beloved and founding pastor, who did no wrong and could do no wrong. Others swore allegiance to Apollos, the pastor who came after Paul that was a little too progressive for some of the folks and messed everything up. And still others swore allegiance to Peter because they'd heard him teach when they were traveling abroad and he was just the best speaker they had ever, ever heard. And others punted on this whole issue of Christian leaders and said that all church leaders were corrupt and they swore their allegiance to Christ. The Corinthians fought, too, about spiritual gifts, and which were the greater spiritual gifts, and which were the lesser spiritual gifts. And they formed factions over this, the faction of peace versus the faction of kindness. They divided over issues of sexual immorality in their church. Members sued other members. And when it came to running the church and worshiping, they found that the rich people from the wealthy suburbs were hogging all the power and excluding poorer members from decision making and leadership. They fought over the resurrection of Jesus and whether it was real or not and what they should believe about it. They fought about how or if women should be allowed in worship and if they were what they should wear and they asked too whether it was not uh, okay to be divorced and one was more righteous if they were celibate or if they were married. Like a group of siblings on a long road trip, the Corinthians tussled and fought with one another, it seems, every hour of every day over everything. In fact, Paul's entire first letter to them is essentially a litany of responses to all the things they'd been fighting about that they had asked him to resolve. Listen to the beginning of chapter 8 again. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. Which is Paul clearly working his way down this laundry list of things that he has to respond to and try to address for this fighting congregation. Now I don't mean to patronize the Corinthians or demean their position. They're at least working out their faith. They're at least engaged enough to fight about things. They're at least asking this question over and over that we Christians have been asking for centuries. How, then, shall we live? I know some churches that are so mired in apathy and conflict that they could care less to even engage with their fellow congregants. But at least, in Corinth, they're talking. Now, the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols would have split the community because some, particularly those who came from a Jewish background, would have most likely been against eating sacrificed meat altogether. That's how they were raised. But those who came from a Gentile background or those who came from poorer households, they may not have seen an issue with eating the meat, especially because meat sacrificed to idols was more abundant than other meat, which meant it was cheaper, which meant it fit their budget. And so Paul begins his response to the Corinthians by saying that anyone who thinks they know the answer to this question doesn't know anything yet. Period. And he says knowledge puffs up while love builds up knowledge puffs up while love builds up and right away he's saying to both parties on this issue stop acting like you have all the answers stop pretending to be superior to your brother or sister your knowledge or lack thereof is driving a wedge in the community and keeping you from loving one another as you ought to do. Our walk with Christ, Paul says, is not about knowing what is right or wrong, good or bad. Journeying with Jesus is not about having morally superior knowledge and lording it over our siblings. Our faith is about love. And then he says something that should offend every single person in this room who has ever attended and loved a church potluck. He says, Food does not bring us near to God. I had a hard time with that one this week. I I don't know, Paul. He says, we're no worse if we do not eat it and no better if we do. He's not trying to scandalize those of us who are obsessed with casseroles and pasta salads. He's trying to tell us that the actual eating of the food is a non-issue. He's punting on their question of whether or not it is good or bad to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He's saying, it doesn't matter what you do. You've been given freedom in Christ. There's no more law to dictate our morality. You can do what you want. But, but, Paul says, not everyone has this knowledge. Not everyone is thinking in this way yet. Some people are going to stumble over this issue. They're going to be scandalized by it. They're going to be offended. This action of eating meat will cause them to fall into sin. And that's partly because of who they are and how they were raised. It's like the other day when this big burly contractor who's working on our home approached Sarah ever so nicely and sweetly and said, Would you mind if I played rock and roll music while I work? And Sarah clutched her pearls and said, "Absolutely not." <laughs> she laughed and told him, "Of course." But he knew from his upbringing that some within the Christian tradition consider it simple or scandalous. They stumble over listening to rock and roll, and he didn't want his own moral thinking and moral acceptance of rock and roll music to upset one of us. It's the same for Paul. The answer to this question of eating meat sacrificed to idols is neither do it or don't do it. The answer is, what's best for your brother or sister? What's best for the whole community? What's best for the church at this point in time? He tells them to be careful that the exercise of their freedom and rights doesn't become a stumbling block to others in their community. If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never, ever eat meat again, Paul says. Because our unity, our community, our connection to one another, our collective participation in the community of Christ is more important than anything else. And this, for him, I think, is true liberty and justice for all. You know, my my prayer partner in Colorado, after a few months of smoking weed again, I asked him how's it going, and he told me he quit, and when I asked him why he quit, he said he had grandkids, and he didn't want to set a bad example. And he didn't want to be high one day when he got a call and he needed to help one of them. He just felt such a strong sense of responsibility, he said, to live in a way that would help them thrive. To stay connected to the family no matter what. To not give them any reason at all to stumble. Don't ask what's good for you. Ask first what's good for your neighbor. That's a short way of saying what Paul is saying here. And he sounds a little like President John F. Kennedy, doesn't he? Or I should say JFK sounded a little like Paul when he said, and so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for humankind. JFK said this at a time when he perceived freedom had reached its hour of maximum danger. And he's writing when there are threats all around the world to the unity and democracy that so many had worked so hard to build. This is not unlike Paul. Paul is writing to a church he's afraid will split in two. A church by the tone and tenor of their letters that is actually splitting as he writes. And he's writing at a time when factionalism is on the rise across the world. When institutions are corroding with corruption. When the empire is marching and taking over and killing the marginalized, or anyone who stands in their way. He's writing, working, and preaching at a time when people and communities are being ripped apart by a rapidly changing world. And he's working hard to keep them together, because he believes the healing of the world depends upon it. This is the way the Spirit will move, the way Christ will show up, in and through the Church, where we vow first to love and think of our neighbor, our brothers and sisters, not first of ourselves. So what do we do with this as a church? How then shall we live? We don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, at least that I know of. I'm pretty sure I've checked with you all, and we all vote for the right candidates when it comes time to vote. We don't have any fighting amongst us. The first question for us is, Are we willing to wrestle with this question? Are we willing to work out our faith? Not just individually, but as a group, as a church, as Fort Street Presbyterian Church in downtown Detroit. And if we are, we have to be honest that part of our working it out is figuring out how to make our concern for our neighbor more than just lip service. It's figuring out how to turn our concern into action rather than just an empty awareness. It's very, very easy for us to recite our mission statement, opening hearts and doors together in faith. You can say it with me, opening hearts and doors together in faith. Try it again, opening hearts and doors together in faith. It's that easy, but it's much harder to ask consistently day in and day out, what does this mean for the way we behave and act as a group? Over three and a half years, I've observed a tendency for those of us in this church, and I am using we language right now, I've observed a tendency for those of us in this church to think of ourselves first. There's been more money invested in this building, its maintenance, its upkeep, and its museum-like quality than has been invested in reaching out to the community to help others. This year alone, we've budgeted more for the building and the organ than we have for programs to reach out and to serve. Over three and a half years, I've observed a tendency among us to speak words of welcome institutionally, opening hearts and doors together in faith. And I've heard more impersonal messages and announcements, but a reluctance to allow newcomers to have a seat at the table to guide and steer this ship. Over three and a half years, I've experienced more conversations about our legacy programs and their essential function to the thriving of this church than I have about our changing downtown community, the needs of our neighbors, and how we might serve them. I've had more meetings about money than I have about our worship or inviting others to church. And I've heard more people tell me what the church should be doing or ought to do or has always done or should be involved with than I have heard people say, Pastor, I will answer the call. I would like to lead this, and I would like to invite others to join me. Fort Street. I think we as a church have the same problem that the Corinthians may have had. We tend to think first of ourselves and our own programs and our own ideas and our own beautiful building and our own traditions and rituals and our own everything. Before we ask first, what does my neighbor need? Before we care for our brothers and sisters, before we truly welcome someone into our church and not just pay them lip service by allowing them to participate in whatever programs we have decided are best for us to do and to keep. And like the Corinthians, we're at a critical time in our history too, aren't we? At our congregational meeting last week, I looked around and I didn't see much youth. I didn't see many new faces and our statistical reports reported the same. There hasn't been much change. In fact, I had the thought, I may have been the youngest person in that room, except for my three-year-old daughter. We're at a critical time where our future is threatened. Our unity is threatened. Our community is threatened. And we've reached a crossroads, whether we like it or not, and as we stand here wondering what to do, it's going to be really easy for us to ask, what can we do to ensure our survival? Instead of asking, who and where can I serve today? Let's pray. Good and loving God, and thank you again for this time together. And thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and minds and send us out to serve and love you. Amen.